Hey, everybody. So there's been a lot of crypto in the news over the last couple of months. Um, there was the uh, the Luna meltdown. Um, there was uh, the Celsius crash, which followed. And then um, last week, you might have heard about the Solana hack, where a bunch of people lost their tokens. Um, anyway, lots of bad things have been happening. And uh, there are even stories about people like losing their life savings. Um, after the, the Luna debacle, there was even word about a couple of people committing suicide. So these are serious incidents, lots of money being lost. And well, um, with the amount of VC injected into these crypto projects, some of which are going down the toilet. Well, it kind of reminds you of 1999, when all you had to do, I mean, well, pretty much all you had to do was put .com at the end of your company name, and you could pull in piles of venture capital, even with a stupid business model, even if you were bleeding money. Um, I, I happened to work for one of those .com companies back in the day, and it was amazing to see from the inside. I mean, this was a, a quote-unquote internet startup in its truest form, uh, I won't name any names, but our executive team was seriously a bunch of clowns. I mean, let's be honest, the talent pool in Portland, Oregon was pretty shallow back in 1999, and we were uh, among the poster children for that uh, that shallow pool. Thankfully and rightfully, that company ended up going belly up, and the, the dude who was our main source of funds, uh, for whatever reason, unrelated to our stupid company, ended up in jail. All my thousands of stock options, which I thought were going to make me rich, uh, well, they ended up being totally worthless. Anyway, the dot-com bubble was a weird kind of a golden age of uh, it's different now, or we, we do things differently today. I mean, you probably recall hearing about companies offering free gourmet lunches, massages, concierge services, dry cleaning, dog sitting, um, you know, all sorts of crazy shit to just keep employees on site keep them happy and keep them working. Uh, apparently, a lot of those stupidly excessive perks are still the norm in Silicon Valley. But but back then, it was pretty novel to have your, your employer, like this company that I worked for, you know, going to Costco a couple of times a week to make sure that the kitchen was always fully stocked with free Cokes and Hot Pockets. Anyway, my point is, right now, VCs in some cases, the exact same VCs that were funneling millions into dot-com companies back then, hint uh, uh, Andreessen Horowitz, um, these VCs are pumping millions of dollars into crypto projects. Uh, now, for those of you sitting in the back, uh, the Andreessen in Andreessen Horowitz is one Mark Andreessen, who was the co-founder of Netscape. Um, if you were around in the late 90s, Netscape, for most of us, was the uh, the first web browser we probably ever used. Um I don't remember the details, but when that company went public, the stock went parabolic and kind of helped usher in that era of IPOs of companies with with like incomplete or non-existent revenue models. And a lot of people made a lot of money investing in companies that ended up never making a dime in profits. Strange days. So, so now as VC firms are backing crypto projects, well, some of those crypto projects are as stupid and in some cases as morally bankrupt and scammy as some of those dot-com companies were back in the day. And the loser in all this insanity is the poor sap who thinks that A, he can make a bunch of money by buying the tokens of these companies or B, make a bunch of money by staking these tokens and earning a bunch of crazy interest on them. By the way, just as an aside, um, you know, uh, in the last 20 years, the Silicon Valley has been pressured both from without and within 
to increase their diversity. You know, the, the tech bros, they're massively predominantly young white males. So to ratchet up the diversity quotient, um, Silicon Valley companies have been trying to hire as many women as humanly possible for well over 20 years. Yes, they do fly in a healthy quantity of our Indian friends through the H-1B visa program, but the pasty white nature of Northern California tech companies really can't be overstated. In fact, just for fun, and I'll put a link in the show notes, if you go to the Andreessen Horowitz website and check out their team page, they've proudly got the photos of all the nice folks who work there. Scroll down to their marketing team if you want to see Silicon Valley diversity at its finest. So they've got 23 people on the marketing team. And as I look through, we've got white, 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 maybe Jewish, white, uh, maybe Latino, white, white, Asian, Asian, white, 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 Asian, white, 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 white. Okay. That's Silicon Valley diversity in 2022. Not that I care. Uh, not that hiring more minorities is going to help them be better marketers. I'm just saying that's the current state. Anyway, Andreessen Horowitz, which is just one VC firm uh, out of many, has raised over $7.6 billion, that's billion with a B, to invest in crypto and Web3 projects. So what does this tell you? Well, for, for one thing, there's going to be a lot of money made in this industry. There's no doubt about it. People and smaller funds are stepping all over each other to put their money into quote-unquote crypto companies. Now, from where I sit, we're in the dot-com era all over again. 23 years later, no less wider, uh, nothing but upside, my friends. Today, it's not pets.com. It's Bored Apes and Axie Infinity. Different business models, different technology, but probably just about equal in stupidity. So all this begs two questions. A, how can I avoid getting fucked like the poor saps who lost their life savings in the Luna and Celsius shit shows? And B, how can I make crazy money safely while investing in this stuff? If Andreessen can raise almost $8 billion, there's clearly money to be made. Well, here's my take. And this is not financial advice, not financial advice. So as you know, if you've been listening to this podcast, and I thank you for staying with me, last summer, I got fed up with my own ignorance surrounding Bitcoin and crypto. I gave Anthony Pompliano a thousand bucks to teach me what the hell is going on uh, through his Pomp's crypto course, which I highly recommend. By the way, as somebody who's interested in the future of money and technology and whatnot, I got to tell you, that was the best thousand bucks I've probably spent on what do they call self-development? Um, and since then, every day of the week, seven days a week, I take in at least an hour of content relating to this space. Uh, at first, last summer and fall, it was closer to three or four. I mean, suffice it to say, I'm into this stuff. So what have I learned? Well, on a fundamental level, I just can't say this enough. There's Bitcoin, and then there are the thousands of other cryptocurrencies and crypto projects. If you haven't read it yet, please check out the paper that Fidelity put out in January called Bitcoin First, link in the show notes. This is such a great starting point for a couple of reasons. One, it's from Fidelity. Okay, you're talking about a pretty, pretty credible source here. Two, it's written in really plain language. Okay, I mean, it's written for people like you and me, non-tech geek adults. Um, and three, it does just a really good job of explaining on a fundamental level why Bitcoin is its own category 
among the thousands of cryptocurrencies. Okay, so that's step one. So in the last year, uh, I've, I personally have gone from having about half my crypto holdings in Bitcoin and the other half in an alphabet soup of other altcoins, including Ethereum, Solana, XRP, Cardano, and a couple of others. But now I'm at about 95% Bitcoin, 4% XRP, and 1% Ethereum. So uh, why XRP? Well, I still believe that there's an actual use case in the next few years, if they can pull themselves out of the litigation with the SEC and get established here in the States, this is total speculation. It's a bet. Uh, it might be totally dumb, but uh, and it doesn't speak to the ethics of their business practices or their executive team. It's just a silly bet that I made with money I can afford to lose. Um, now, if you would like to learn more about XRP, I did an episode with a deep dive into XRP, the lawsuit and the SWIFT system. Uh, and if I do say so myself, it's pretty good. Uh, it's the Rogue Retirement Lounge uh, episode number 48, and I'll put a link in the show notes. Okay, so what about Ethereum? Well, I got to tell you, I hate Ethereum. I think it's it's interesting technology, but it's it's fucked up in a lot of ways. For one thing, the transaction fees are insane. So just as a user, um, oh, and, and you might recall uh, last year I was kind of dabbling in some NFTs, uh, which are all happened to be built on the Ethereum blockchain. And in the process, I paid literally thousands of dollars in Ethereum gas fees to buy and sell those NFTs. Um, long story short, the, the Ethereum fee system, I don't really understand how it works, but when there's high traffic on the network, you pay way more for transaction fees. And it doesn't really seem to be based uh, as a percentage of the transaction, which makes it extra screwed up. I mean, I could see a 1% fee on however much you're spending going up to 2 or 3% if network traffic is high. That would make sense. But the way that it's set up, or at least the way it was last year, was that you could like pay a hundred bucks or more in gas fees to buy a $5 NFT, depending on network traffic. It's, it's stupid. And when you see the transaction fees on the lightning network for Bitcoin, which clock in at fractions of a cent, it makes Ethereum look extra stupid. Anyway, I'm, I happen to be mining Ethereum with a little gaming computer here in my office. Well, actually a pretty big gaming computer I bought last year. And I hold a tiny little bit in my Roth IRA. I haven't gotten rid of that tiny bit just because uh, later this summer, Ethereum is supposed to be moving to proof of stake. Uh, and supposedly the value could skyrocket. I'm not going to hold my breath. I don't have much Ethereum, so I'm not really worried about it, but I just haven't sold it yet. So uh, what what what's proof of stake? Okay, well, it's very important if you're into this stuff to know the difference between proof of work and proof of stake, but I'm going to just leave that there. I'll do an episode about the differences. By the way, Bitcoin is and always will be proof of work. Okay, anyway, it's way too big of a can of worms to open right now. So let's say that you're like me and you have 95% of your crypto holdings in Bitcoin, but you want to gamble with that remaining 5% and try to make some of those incredible gains like Andreessen is banking on. To that, I'd say, honestly, I'd say save yourself the heartache and pain in the ass and just put the rest, put the whole thing in Bitcoin and call it a day. So... At least to my knowledge, crypto VC isn't any different from traditional VC. It's all back office, glad handing, check writing, and dick sucking on Sand Hill Road, leading up to a liquidity event where suckers like you and me 
put our money in, hoping to make our money, while the VCs are getting all their money back, like a hundred or a thousand times over what they put in. Um, you know, in the traditional VC model, um, a big event which marks the beginning of their exit is the IPO. They've invested in the company at a nice tiny valuation. Then over the course of a couple years, even if the company's hemorrhaging money, like for example, Uber, DoorDash, you get the idea. Even if the company is sucking wind through whatever metrics they can use, like international penetration or customer retention or brand awareness or whatever, they get to way overvalue the company before taking it public. Then the VCs make a massive profit as they make their exit and suckers like you and me get in on an IPO that, I mean, in all likelihood is going to end up losing us money or making returns that are paltry compared to the crazy returns that the VCs are making. So in the crypto world, it's remarkably similar. But what will happen is the company that they're investing in, the crypto company they're investing in, they'll do what's called an airdrop and, and give them a big fat pile of their tokens early on. For example, I heard one dude on a podcast who'd invested um, in a couple of different VC rounds in Solana. I wish I could remember the exact numbers, but basically they'd gotten in with the Solana token at something crazy like five cents a piece, okay? So, and at the time that this interview was recorded, Solana was trading at like a hundred bucks. Okay, so you're talking about like a 2000X ROI. Crazy, crazy numbers. But like old school pre-IPO venture investing, civilians like you and I don't get exposure to these types of deals. I'm not saying it's good or it's bad. It's just how it is. And really... But personally, I wouldn't want to be part of that world because A, I'm risk averse. And of course, B, I don't have millions of liquid dollars or friends with millions of liquid dollars. Um, and C, you know, the VC business model to me is kind of like the music business. The You know, the record company A&R, he goes out and signs 10 bands knowing that nine of those 10 won't even be able to sell enough records to repay their advances. But that 10th band will go platinum and end up bringing in enough money to pay for those nine boners they signed and still rack up a hefty profit for the record company. Okay, where am I going with this? Um, thanks for the lecture, Matt. Um, I just want to make some money. So again, here's what I would tell you friend to friend if we were sitting here having beers about crypto investing. This is not financial advice. Don't put any money into these altcoins. Uh, you know, unless you're willing to put in an hour a day into researching the, uh, and following the markets and the technology, just, I would just say, forget it. Don't, not even for gambling fun, end of. But do put money into Bitcoin. And again, familiarize yourself with why Bitcoin is a category in and of itself. Read that Vanguard white paper and please, I implore you, read the Bitcoin standard. Okay, the link in the show notes. If you're going to read one book about the future of money in your life, Read the Bitcoin Standard by Saifedean Amos. Uh, link in the show notes. Uh, okay, now fast forward. You've read both the Vanguard paper and the Bitcoin Standard. So how much of your overall net worth should you be putting into Bitcoin? Well, we've heard every random number. Start with 1% or you should put 3% of your wealth into Bitcoin. Or maybe you've seen headlines uh, about funds and PERS systems that will soon be placing 5% of their assets into Bitcoin. Well, here's my take. And after listening to this, if you're a financial advisor, feel free to send me all the hate mail you want. So uh, after immersing myself in Bitcoin for the last year, having put in uh, probably over well over a thousand hours into learning about this new form of money, I've developed 
a formula for Bitcoin allocation. It's simple. The percentage of your net worth that I personally, not financial advice again, believe you should hold in Bitcoin can be determined by a simple equation I developed that is this, LE minus A minus 10. So that's your life expectancy minus your current age, LE minus A minus 10. For me, I believe I'm going to live to be 94. Just so you know, a lot of thought has gone into that number. So anyway, 94. My current age is 53. 94 minus 53 equals 41. So LE minus A for me equals 41. Minus 10 equals 31. So for me, I should have 31%. Yes, 31. 31% of my net worth in Bitcoin. And does that make me crazy? Maybe. So... How about you? How about your 35-year-old kid who just moved out of the basement? Well, if you were to go by basically like a generic actuarial table, your male 35-year-old son will live to be 78. And by the way, did you know that the Social Security Administration has its own life expectancy calculator? Um, it's interesting because it shows how long the government thinks that you're going to live based on your current age. But then they also give you your life expectancy should you make it to age 62, 67, and then 70. Anyway, that's worth checking out too. Uh, as always, link in the show notes. Anyway, according to Social Security's calculator, your 35-year-old son will actually likely live to age 81. Uh, if he makes it to 70, they think he'll live to age 87. So let's let's use that 81 number and pop your kid's number in, in, into my Bitcoin formula. So Ellie is 81. A is 35. So 81 minus 35 equals 46. 46 minus 10 equals 36. So your 35-year-old son, according to my goofy formula, should have 36% of his net worth in Bitcoin. Does that sound aggressive or, or just insane? Well, that's why you don't come to me for financial advice. So what about rebalancing? Should you rebalance? I would say yes, but not annually, just because Bitcoin is a very volatile asset, as we all know. And as we move toward possibly Weimar Germany-esque hyperinflation, that volatility could get worse. So rebalancing your portfolio every January 1st, like your Edward Jones guy might like to do, is not really what I'd recommend. But yes, say a year or two after cycle bottom, you might want to cash out some of your Bitcoins, uh, profit and throw into some more traditional investments. But back to my equation, LE minus A minus 10, life expectancy minus age minus 10. So am I practicing what I preach? Well, I don't want to get too deep into my personal numbers, but let's just say I'm working toward that. And again, every day, Bitcoin is under $50,000 is a gift from God, and to me, a generational buying opportunity. Um, oh, holy shit. Okay, this is this is turning into a long diatribe. You know, the whole point of this episode was going to be that I was going to read the letter that that dummy Elizabeth Warren wrote to Fidelity CEO Abigail Johnson regarding Bitcoin. Uh, my apologies, today has kind of gone off the rails. Anyway, I will get to that. But also, I just want to say that, you know, I've been chewing on that Bitcoin equation for six months now. And when I first came up with it, I made two decisions. One was that I personally was going to start really working aggressively toward that. And I have done that more than I would have thought possible and faster than I would have thought possible. But number two, I was never going to talk about that on this show just because it's too crazy. I mean, it's crazy on one hand because if you don't really fully understand or agree with the, the overall premise of Bitcoin and the future of it, 
well, then putting 30% of your net worth into what the New York Times is still basically calling a Ponzi scheme, putting 30% of you, the money that you've worked all your life for is just stupid. But for young Bitcoiners, on the other hand, for people who really understand the promise and potential, a lot of them would think it's completely stupid to put less than 100% of your net worth into it. And, and it's true. There are a lot of people out there who are 100% Bitcoin. So now I've just probably overshared and uh, please don't do what I say. This is for entertainment purposes and all that. Um, so anyway, onto the letter. In case you haven't heard, earlier this year, uh, Fidelity became the first major financial services firm to offer investors the chance to add cryptocurrency assets to their 401k accounts. And to protect investors from doing something dumb like using Matt Franklin's Bitcoin life expectancy equation to determine their allocation, Fidelity set a limit of 20% as the top end of how much the participants of their nest eggs that they could put into Bitcoin. Probably smart. So in the same summer when all hell is breaking loose as Democrats go nuts about keeping government out of their uteruses, they have no problem trying to inject their wills into your financial life, penetrating your portfolios, if you will. Now, I realize that this podcast is for self-employed people, and most of you haven't had a 401k for years, if ever. But I wanted to share the letter written by Senators uh, Elizabeth Warren, Dick Durbin, and Tina Smith to Fidelity CEO Abigail Johnson, admonishing her and Fidelity for allowing people to have that sovereignty or choice with regards to their uh, 401k accounts and have the opportunity to invest part of their earnings in Bitcoin. By the way, Dick Durbin is a Democrat from Illinois and Tina Smith is a Democrat from Minnesota. So the letter goes like this. Dear Mrs. Johnson, we write today to ask why Fidelity, a trusted name in the retirement industry, would allow plan sponsors the ability to offer plan participants exposure to Bitcoin. While plan sponsors ultimately are responsible for choosing the investments available to participants, it seems ill-advised for one of the leading names in the world of finance to endorse the use of such a volatile, illiquid, and speculative asset in 401k plans, which are supposed to be retirement savings vehicles defined by consistent contributions and steady returns over time. As one of the largest 401k providers, Fidelity must be our aware. Okay, yes, they sent this letter without having a staffer proofread it. Uh, Fidelity must be our aware of the precarious position of Americans' retirement savings. While the average 401k balance is $129,157, the median balance for 401k accounts is just $33,472. With Americans living longer today than ever before, it is apparent that too many retirees are likely to outlast their balances during their golden years. Those fortunate enough to have access to a retirement plan may be unable to find space within their household budget to contribute to an employer-sponsored plan and feel that their wages would be better directed to household essentials such as housing costs, childcare, food, or transportation. Okay, I promise not to editorialize too much here, but why the hell is housing, childcare, and food Abigail Johnson's problem and what does this statement add to the argument? Nothing. The letter goes on. Some workers, especially younger workers, 
just entering the workforce might not see the value of participating in an employer-sponsored plan or may consider retirement a problem worth addressing later in their working life. Well, to that, I would say um, younger people might be incented to put aside some of their income into these 401k plans simply because they're going to now offer the Bitcoin option. So, dumb, dumb argument here. The above issues are legitimate, complex problems within our retirement system. This begs the question, when saving for retirement is already a challenge for so many Americans, why would Fidelity allow those who can save to be exposed to an untested, highly volatile asset like Bitcoin? While the underlying technology of blockchain shows promise and has the potential to be used for innovative and exciting applications... Okay, Jesus Christ. Okay, Elizabeth Warren is 73 years old, Tina Smith is 64, and Dick Durbin is 77. Do they really expect you to believe that they could even come close to explaining what a blockchain actually is? No, they don't have any idea what those words even mean. Anyway, while the underlying technology of blockchain shows promise and has the potential to be used for innovative and exciting applications, consumers must be wary of the risks associated with Bitcoin and other digital assets. Okay, sorry to keep busting in here, but Bitcoin is the only cryptocurrency Fidelity is enabling its investors to buy, not any other quote-unquote digital assets. The letter goes on. What appears to be certain is many are unaware of the potential risks and financial dangers posed by digital assets like Bitcoin. For a while, many consumers had reason to believe they were on sound footing in choosing to pour their hard-earned dollars into Bitcoin, an entire ecosystem ranging from self-described cryptocurrency investment experts on social media to highly paid actors and celebrities and even some Washington lawmakers have led many to believe that investing in Bitcoin or other digital assets is a sound investment strategy that would pay off handsomely down the line. Some even went so far as to call Bitcoin an inflation hedge that would prove a useful investment tool during times of high inflation. When Bitcoin topped out at $68,000 in November of 2021, many of those proponents sounded prescient. Today, Bitcoin stands at $20,849, more than two-thirds off its peak. While we appreciate Fidelity's efforts to help working Americans realize a more secure retirement, this decision is immensely troubling. Perhaps most troubling is that in pointing to the risks of investing in Bitcoin on its website and planning to cap plan participants' Bitcoin exposure to 20%, Fidelity is acknowledging it is well aware of the dangers associated with investing in Bitcoin and digital assets, yet is deciding to move ahead anyways. There are many ways that Americans can invest in Bitcoin and the cryptocurrency casino, but it seems as though this latest effort through what is supposed to be a retirement nest egg is a bridge too far. Retirement accounts must be held to a higher standard, one that Bitcoin and other unregulated digital assets fail to meet. This asset class is unwieldy, immensely complex, unregulated, and highly volatile. Working families' retirement accounts are no place to experiment with unregulated asset classes that have yet to demonstrate their value over time. Thank you for your consideration to this important issue. We look forward to your response. Sincerely, Dick, Liz, and Tina. Okay. So what you've just heard, there's so much horseshit in that letter. I don't really even know where to begin. I, I, I will tell you this, at least for Elizabeth Warren, 
this was a totally empty effort. Now, because she is super active on Twitter. I follow her because she's one of the leading fossils in our geriatric Congress. Um, and I find her positions pretty highly entertaining across the board. She's constantly tweeting and patting herself on the back for her stances on corporate greed and canceling student debt and other pandering horseshit basically meant to attract the votes of waterhead 20-something Massachusetts communists. But she didn't tweet about this letter, not even once. Um, the letter itself was dated July 26th. And what did she tweet about on the 26th? Well, her first tweet was about urging Pete Buttigieg uh, to use the DOT to crack down on airlines to, quote, hold them accountable and promote competition to prevent higher prices. Maybe she should talk to the Department of Energy about jet fuel costs. Next, she uh, tweeted a Bloomberg article about high chicken prices, calling out corporate monopolies and anti-competitive practices. Next up, that same day, she marked the 32nd anniversary of the ADA, again patting herself on the back with empty words saying, I'll keep fighting for economic security, equal opportunity, and inclusion for people with disabilities. Sure you will. Next up, a tweet in support of the Senate Cafeteria Workers Union. I'd love to know how much they get paid. Um, she wrote, count me in to stand with Senate cafeteria workers. I will not cross the picket line. Uh, what a sacrifice, Elizabeth. I guess you'll just have to send a staffer down to Capatosta to bring lunch to your office. The cafeteria workers are forever in your debt. So anyway, why wouldn't she pat herself on the back on Twitter for that vapid letter to Ms. Johnson? Well, she probably knew she'd get flamed by people from all parties on Twitter if she chose to promote it. And, and just let it sink in one more time. She is 73 years old. Tina Smith is 64. And Dick Durbin clocks in at 77. These three are all fossils. They're Luddites. They have no understanding of Bitcoin. And the letter, well, it, it, it proves that. Anyway, I just wanted to share that. Uh, again, thanks for sticking with me. This is turning out super long. So that's it for today. Thank you for being here. Um, if you haven't subscribed yet, please do. And if you're super bored, if you could give me a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, it would mean a lot to me. Have a great day, and I will be back in a couple days. Nothing in this podcast is meant to be financial, legal, or tax advice. Though there's some kick-ass information here, it's for informational purposes only. Take control of your retirement planning, but get professional counsel if you need tax, legal, or financial advice. For more content like this, join my mailing list at rogueretirementlounge.com. And if you have questions about retirement investing, entrepreneurship, business, or anything else, my email address is matt at rogueretirementlounge.com. 